Well, you can turn now to the book of Ruth. We're going to be starting, and this is exciting for me. Uh, We've ended the book of 1 Peter, which is quite heartbreaking. I love that book. It was so timely that God would bring us to it. But we're coming to the book of Ruth. And it is, in itself is, is a good lesson on, on how God times all things according to his plan. But, but I don't want to give too much away. We will look at it as we go. But can you please open up to the book of Ruth? I hope, I'm just going to give a moment because I don't want there to be uh, men and women and children sitting on couches in, uh, uh, as you listen to this without a Bible open in front of you. It's just going to make so much more sense. Of course, it, it's on the screen, but it's just going to be so much more uh, able... Uh, easy to follow. If you can look at the verses as I preach, I chop and change around a bit, so I think that'll help you. Uh, but, but we are looking at the book of Ruth, and this is a love story. Uh, I, I know that, that we, um, we love those texts in Scripture which are just didactic teaching on doctrine, and, and Ruth is not one of those books. It's a narrative. It's a story, and if I'm honest, it's, it's a bit of an Old Testament Cinderella story. It's a beautiful love story uh, that is Uh, That is this amazing tale of how God redeems situations and people in his larger story of the whole Bible, which is the redemption of sinners. So we're going to see in here that God redeems the story of Ruth. He redeems her to point to the larger ark story, overarching story, which is God redeeming lost sinners from sin and hell and Satan and death and judgment. It's the story, the book of Ruth, while you're still getting there, it's the seventh in our Bible from in the Old Testament. Uh, it's the story of just one family, but it's the story of how that one family has changed the course of not just their Israel nation, but the entire world, and we will see how that happened. It's, a, it's an amazing, inspiring, beautiful story. I know if you've read through this or heard it preached through before, you'll be excited to get back into it. It's a wonderful story. It's only four chapters. We'll get through it in, in no time at all, right? It only took us eight months to do a, a five-chapter First Peter, so we'll, we'll, we'll make plenty of ground. Don't worry about it. Uh, so please open up there, be there. Uh, and what we're going to see is themes of, I've said, God's, God's redemption, how he takes things that are, are ugly or sinful or broken, rebellious, and he makes them work for his own good and for their good. So we see this idea of God's redemption, but also in and through all of that, his, his sovereignty, how he controls all things. And we're going to see through this the the picture of God's loving care and how he uses all things for the redemption of his people. So all these things intertwine. It's exciting. Please tell me you're in Ruth chapter 1 by now. And I'm just going to read from verse 1, the first few verses, and then we'll go back and go verse by verse throughout it all, okay? Verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. Now, that's just two verses we'll break down. This is where we find the setting of the book of Ruth. Book of Ruth is, as it tells us in verse 1, in the days when the judges ruled. Now, if you've got your Bible open, directly to the left, just before Ruth, in our English Bible, is 
the, the book of the Judges. Now, this is uh, about the time of uh, 1100 BC. So we're 1100 years before Jesus is born. And we're at this point in the history of Israel where the Israelites have come up out of Egypt, you know that, through slavery, uh, through the Exodus, Moses led them. Then they had the rebellious generation die in the desert after 40 years of wandering. And then through Joshua, God led his people on a, on a uh, rampage, and a, uh, an orderly rampage, but a, a retaking of God's promised land for the Jews. So he led them on this campaign through Canaan, which became Israel, and they, uh, they, they had to conquer uh, towns and uh, the different nations in that area, and then each of the 12 tribes of Israel settled in their respective places. And then it, uh, the days pass by, they don't have a king yet, and I'll speak to that a little bit. And if you're a history nut, I don't know if this will be helpful for you, but I've done a bit of research, and and in the time that we're reading, I want you to realize that this takes place on human history. This is real story. This is not just a tale, a fairy tale, a, a myth. This is real human history. And as the nation of Israel historically was still settling down and they not yet had a king, and they were still pushing out some of the neighboring nations, at the same time over in Greece, you've got uh, the city of Troy and the city of Corinth just developing and uh, being, being established. So this is early on in world history, but all over the globe, different things of significance are happening. You're in the, in the second dynasty of, of China at that point, still really developing their nation into all that it is going to become. Uh, and, and you've also got in, uh, in Babylon, Nineveh, the city that Jonah will later go to in a few hundred years, about 800 years, that, that city, Nineveh, it's just being established. So, so this is a, a formative time for world history. So many things are at play now, which will become significant later. But at the moment, we're looking at Israel's history. And so they're in this, in this uh, time of the judges. They're in the promised land, but not everything is going well. In fact, if you can look back through the book of Judges, you'll find that, that it is a book of, of darkness, and they don't have a, a single leader in the nation. What they have is just one or two deliverers who rise up by God's Holy Spirit coming and empowering them. They rise up uh, periodically, but it's always short-lived, and those people are always racked with their own failures and sins. So you've got people like Gideon, Deborah, Samson, Othniel. Uh, these guys are those who are rising up, but there is no king. Over and over and over in the book of Judges, you hear this refrain. There was no king in the land. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. If you know anything about human nature and history, you know that when men do what is right to themselves and are not governed with God's means of grace in government and law enforcement, it's an ugly scene. And so the whole book of Judges is characterized by sexual sin, godless violence, Political upheaval, wars, military campaigns, crime, 
religious impurity. Okay, so they were worshipping other idols called idolatry. They were welcoming in the Canaanite gods in different sections and God rose up deliverers or the judges to push that back. Let's, let's just compare a bit because we find judges, then book of Ruth. Beautiful story right on the back end of an ugly, terrible tale of Israel's history. So let's compare them a little bit. Judges sets the scene on a whole national narrative, right? It's telling the story of the whole nation and all that is going on. Ruth is the story of just one single family. Where Judges is a dark display of human vileness without any order. Ruth is a bright show of human exemplary godly behavior. While Judges is, is this big grand story of, of the, the enemies coming in and the heroes rising up and there's a very good versus bad uh, 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 theme going on. In, in Ruth, there is no main antagonist. There is no bad guy. There is, there is simply men and women walking through ordinary life like you and I do every day. It's on the ground kind of book. Judges is a book which shows us these, these mighty acts done by Samson and Gideon and the like, these, these enormously miraculous things which work for a short amount of time and then Israel's back in its mess. Whereas in the book of Ruth, we just see the faithfulness of nobodies. There's no big heroes in Ruth. They're just ordinary nobodies in the small everyday life decisions who honor God and they, as opposed to the judges, change the course of world history. Judges shows us all of this idolatry and God's punishment on them, whereas Ruth shows us God's blessing people who have pure faith. Judges shows us and, and leaves us wondering, will there ever be a king to rule God's people in God's promised land? You can look at the last verse in the book of Judges, and see that it says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So, so will there be a king? Will this nation of God become a nation that, that produces the, the, the fruit of righteousness and lives under the kingdom of God? But then the, the last verse in the book of Ruth, in comparison, tells us that Ruth's son, Obed, Father Jesse and Jesse, Father David. Have you heard of King David? I think you have. King David is that great towering king of the Old Testament, so much like God, though, riddled with his own sins and failures. So, so where Judges leaves us wondering, Ruth answers the question and gives us hope. And so the book of Ruth is this beautiful story, and I'll say it again. Redemption. This is going to come up over and over again. Redemption where God takes a dark, disgusting situation, difficult, sinful lives, and he, he takes those, those lost family lines, those godless nations, those sinful people, maybe you can relate with this like I can. He takes a filthy situation, and he actually ends up bringing it to work for his glory and bring those people into himself through disaster in ordinary life. I just love this book. But so, so that's, that's the first line. In the days 
when the judges ruled. That's what the, the writer of Ruth, who is either Samuel the prophet or it might be Solomon, and the purpose of the book is really to show, look, we know we had Saul as king, but I'm telling you, I am telling you, God had in the pipeline this King David from way back. Okay, it's, it's really making a case that, that David is God's man for this moment. God has been preparing his family line for generations. Saul was a distraction. David's the man. And so it, it's going to show us this beauty of the story that God worked in David's ancestors. So, in the days when the judges ruled, dark days, there was a famine in the land and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, him, his wife, and his two sons. So, so there's a famine in the land. That should not in any way sit well with us. That should prick our ears and make us attentive and, and even a little bit worried. What is happening here? That the, the promised land that they're now in, right? they're not wandering the desert anymore. They're not in Egypt anymore. They're in the promised land flowing with milk and honey that God had been promising for hundreds of years to his people. Now they're in it and it's in a famine. That there's nothing going well. That people are starving. Right? Don't just think famine and, and you know there's nothing on the shelves in the supermarket. It is hard for us to get our mind around in the Western modern world what it would be like living in a famine then. They, they would be asking, they would be wondering of God, where is the blessing? What is God doing? He'd obviously not been aware of this situation. He's, he's missed something. You know, we, there, there is dying children. There are starving families. There is joblessness. There is domestic violence. This is what famines do. Right? Livestock are dying. Families being ripped apart. Family lines ending as children and parents die. There is upheaval as people rob each other and try and gain whatever food is left. This is an ugly time. This is an ugly time. And either, you know, historically at this time, we know from the story of Gideon that the Midianites, who were, who were people from the north of where they are now in, in the book of Ruth, they had come into the land of Israel and they were just uh, cutting down all of the crop and stealing it for themselves and, and burning the fields. So, so maybe this is a famine brought about by political oppression or it's a famine brought about by, by the weather, by lack of rain, whatever it is. We know it's under God's control, but they had to be wondering where his blessing was. God must not, though, maybe they were thinking, God won't be willing this. This is terrible. This is suffering. Where is God in this situation? Well, this is in the land of Judah, but specifically in the town of Bethlehem. Right? If you are familiar with the Bible, Bethlehem's a well-known town. It features quite often. But Bethlehem means... Okay, it's about eight kilometers south of Jerusalem, if you're thinking of a map. Eight kilometers south. And it means house of bread. That, that's the meaning of the word Bethlehem. House of bread. And there's a famine. How very, very ironic that the house of bread has no bread. I, I think that's an intentional uh, inclusion from the author here and especially from God. Right? That's, it's, it's like, it's, oh, you're from the house of bread. You, you guys must have plenty of bread. No, 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 there's a famine. Like, oh, where do you live? I'm from New Farm. Oh, there must be lots of burly farmers and farmland there. No, there's 
what do they got there? I mean, apartments, hipsters, and not very many burly men. Oh, that's disappointing. Or, I mean, I, I live in Forest Lake. Oh, there must be a beautiful forest and a lake. Well, actually, no, a fire tore through, and there's no lake left, and the forest is gone. Oh, how ironic. That's what we're meant to hear as we look at this. We go, oh, Bethlehem, the bread place where they have plenty of crop to produce bread. No, there's a famine. How very ironic and depressing. Where is God? This must be a mistake. He didn't mean for this to happen. He didn't want this to happen. He's at a loss here. Well, this is what I want us to see. We're going to see now one of the large, enormous themes that... Uh, all throughout Ruth is the theme of God's providence. Now, I, I know this is just God's timing. Let me just say it from the outset, this is an amazing act of God's providence that just last week we finished our, our exposition of the London Baptist Confession of Faith in our morning services, and we finished the chapter on providence, which is, uh, as, well, well, we'll go into it a little bit more. So I know you've, you've had the, the pipeline prime for you to understand a bit more of what we're going to talk about in the doctrine of providence. The, the doctrine of providence teaches us, uh, it teaches us that God created all things. That, that's his creation. He created, he caused, he was the beginner of all things. But then God continues to sustain, preserve all things in that existence. That They continually rely on God for their ongoing existence. They're not self-sufficient. We also learn that he cooperates, works, and governs all things in life. And everything happens under his control, is what we're saying. This is, this is what this means. Everything that happens in life happens under God's control. And thirdly, we mean, so he sustains all things and preserves it. He controls all things. But thirdly, he also governs all things in an intentional direction towards the fulfillment of his eternal purpose and plans. So he's not just controlling, he's controlling it all towards a great and glorious end, which is the consummation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. All of that brought together, this preserving, controlling, and governing all things to his goals. This is what historically Christians have called the doctrine of God's providence. And I want you to Put that word, that theme, that doctrine deep in your mind. It, we're going to see how practical, beautiful, amazing this doctrine is for us. This is the doctrine of providence. What this teaches us against, what this doctrine shows is not true, is the idea of deism. This popular idea that God, that there's a God out there, He exists, we can't really know He or she and what they are like, uh, but they, they existed, they created everything, and then went over on the holidays, or they separated themselves from the world so that it goes on on its own. Uh, there's no intimate correlation or relationship between God and creation, but a separation. Well, no, we, we say against all of that, he is in all things and working through all things and very closely relating to all people. So not deism. We also push back against with this doctrine, we push back against that destructive and disgusting doctrine called open theism. Is another doctrine or a theory that people suggest and try and spread. And it's, it's this idea that God doesn't know the future. We don't know the future. We're learning. We're making decisions as we go. God's in the same boat. He's very wise. He's infinitely uh, uh, wiser than us. So he, 
he works all things out the best he can, but he has no clue what is coming. He does not know for certainty what will happen tomorrow, next week, next year at all. And that cannot be squared in any way with the doctrine of God that we receive from the Scripture. That is not a Christian doctrine. We don't believe in, in uh, uh, providence. Sorry, in providence, we don't believe in this theory of pantheism, this, this very pagan idea where, where God is, in, in pantheism, God is, uh, God is creation. The creation is God. Everything you touch and see is God. And, and we're also not believing in panentheism, which would believe that all things exist within God. God is, God is uh, uh, a sort of in and through all things, and the creation is very much a part of God. We don't believe in that either. We believe in God's control and work through all things, but not his existence in all things, or that all things exist in their nature as God. Uh, and, and we also push back against, and this is not the same as fate. Okay? You'll hear this fatalistic idea that, that your decisions, you can make all sorts of, this is kind of what it's like when you watch a, a time-traveling movie, that your fate, your destiny is set, and no matter what you do, the choices you make, nothing can ultimately uh, change what's going to end up happening in your life. It's all ir- uh, irrespective of your decisions. No, we don't believe that. We, we have real, ultimate responsibility, uh, whereas fate teaches that there are no ultimate um, meaning to your choices. We don't believe that. Let me also just say here, and this is the one of all the things that I've just mentioned, none of them are Christian. There is, however, in the realm of Christianity, um, a, a theory of this doctrine called, um, this is the Arminian view of providence. This is uh, what is often called the, the free will view or the Arminian view, which says that God is in control. He is in control of all things ultimately, kind of, but he is not able to force decisions through uh, uh, people. He is he has not planned every single occurrence in every single day in every person's life. Okay, he has, he's more like, this is, this is the example, he's, he's more like a jazz conductor. So he'll, he'll stand up the front and he'll sort of direct the, the workings of the world like a jazz, a jazz conductor where, where you just play your own thing and things sort of uh, 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 come up uh, uh, randomly and, and by their own decisions. And, and if things go too far out of control, he'll bring it back. But ultimately, he's just bringing this whole random thing into a beautiful picture. I'll, I'll give you a, a quote from um, uh, the... Uh, the, the systematic theologian Cottrell, he's a Arminian, he says, God does not have a specific, unconditional purpose for each discrete particle, object, person, and event within the creation. So, so we in the Reformed or Calvinistic position believe that it's not like a jazz show with God sort of generally directing it towards his goals, but rather that this is sheet music. This is an orchestra. God has specific notes for everything and person and instrument to play according to time, and it creates a beautiful tapestry, a beautiful uh, uh, display of his wisdom and creativity and sovereignty and will come to its exact and decisive end as he plans it all out. So I just want to repeat that, that depressing, devastating quote. That God, according to the Arminian view, does not have a specific, 
unconditional purpose for each discrete particle, object, person, and event within the creation. Depressing. Devastating to hear that. That I could sit opposite you in, in the hospital or, or in the disastrous situation or, or in whatever you're going through or I could look at a person and, and I could not say with any confidence that God has a decisive, well, I want to quote his words, a, a decisive, uh, unconditional, specific purpose in this situation or for that cell that mutated in your body or for this uh, uh, occurrence that happened at work or, or, or anything like that. I mean, he doesn't have it, that they can look at a situation and theologically say, God may not have a purpose for this. Well, he could use it eventually. He may bring things about, but in its occurrence, the very occurrence was not a purpose of God. No, we, we hold firmly in this reformed view of, of providence that it is not just the big important events, but all things that ever happen anywhere to any person at any time, regardless of how many other things look to have caused it, regardless of how many times you can look at it and say, I see exactly how that came out to be. Or, or you can look at it and say, I have no clue how this happened. Both situations under the sovereign purposes of God. Uh, no matter how avoidable or unavoidable it seemed, or how how. Uh, how intentional it was from you or unintentional. In all things, God is behind it, beneath it, and above it, willing for it to happen, decreeing that it would occur to work out towards the completion of his ultimate purpose, which is salvation of his chosen people, glorification of his son. This is what we believe in the doctrine of providence. And I hope that you would, as we look through the book of Ruth now, I know you think we've, we've just stepped out of the book of Ruth to talk about this, but we haven't. Ruth will show us over and over again these, these examples of, of, in the Hebrew, it's, it's a little, it's a trick, uh, it's a funny little phrase that they'll use. It's sort of the equivalent of, of luck. Okay, oh, as luck would have it. Oh, how ironic. Or it just so happened to be that Ruth stumbled across this person. And it's a sarcastic throwback to the fact that there is no such thing as luck. In your life, in Ruth's life, and we'll see how it works out, there's no such thing as bad luck. There's no such thing as unfortunate fate. There's no such thing as uh, just happenstance and coincidence. In the Christian's life, we realize all these things that we would call accidents are no such thing. They are God's intentional providence, sometimes to get your attention, sometimes to punish, sometimes to discipline, sometimes to bless, sometimes to encourage our faith, whatever it is. It's not just accidents, coincidence, happenstance. It's the great godly view of providence. So now we go back to the story. Because this doctrine has enormous ramifications on your life. How well you suffer. How you make decisions. How wisely you think through situations. This all matters. And we see it happening in this book of Ruth for Abimelech. He was a man living in Judah, in Bethlehem. A famine comes, and his assumption is that there is something wrong with God, or God's not in on this situation, or the primary way of solving it is not to seek God, read His Word, but rather to solve the problem myself without His wisdom. 
as if God's deistic, separated from the situation, or open theistic, unaware that this situation was going to happen. So I've got to solve it myself. We're going to see what, how this view of providence comes through the book of Ruth and affects our everyday life. Let me, let me show you again. He runs off to the, to the land of Moab. And, and after we, we explain the, the land of Moab and Abimelech's leaving to there, we're going to take pause and we'll pick up next week. But, the book of, uh, but, but Ruth tells us that, uh, Ruth doesn't, but the, the book of Ruth tells us that Abimelech, without a good, solid view of God's providence, leaves and goes over to, to, Moab, to Moab. So I, I think that, that Abimelech here, he's, his name does mean God is my king. But he's not really living like God is his king. Because he's living like his own wisdom, his own uh, intelligence, economics, these things are his king. You know, maybe he's, he's much like everyday Christians. I, I want to put you in, in his shoes Maybe you and I get, get like Abimelech so much. And, and you know, we're, we're Jews or we're Christians. We're, we wouldn't say that we're not Christians. We're not going to deny the faith. But we're just Christian enough to call ourselves that. But then when it actually comes down to day by day, decisions that we need to make about where we live, what jobs we do, the course I run, where my kids go to school, what the, the sports they play on which days of the week, like none of those are really informed by my Christianity. <laughs> Christianity is a great Sunday thing. I pick a good, healthy church. But this is everyday life. Don't quote to me Bible. This is real life. He has this disconnect between God of spiritual things and then real everyday life. Friends, the doctrine of providence brings these things together and says that there is no, it's not just that God wrote the book of the Bible and the rest is up to us, but that God wrote the book of history and we are, we are players in his grand narrative. And so everything that happens, we look to the author of the good book and the historical book and say, where should I go from here? What does your special revelation teach me? Because what Abimelech did was he took his family and he went over to an evil and godless place. You know, we, we, if we don't believe in God's providence, we'll, we'll act in a way that, that b- believes that God is not behind everything. And so, instead of responding to God in repentance, we respond to the situation by running. Abimelech, has he, he should know, maybe he hasn't read and known, that God has said through Moses, just a couple of generations earlier, if you, my people Israel, come into this promised land, and they did, and you turn after other gods and live sinfully, I will curse your land and it will not produce grain. I will hold back the clouds and they will not produce rain. You will starve until you turn back to me. I'll bless you and bless the land. This is not the the situation that we have in our world today. Your garden, if you're a Christian, you're not promised uh, agricultural blessing. But in the old covenant, I was a part of it. It was a part of the explicit promises. Now, Abimelech should have tried to be a part of the solution by responding to God in repentance, leading his family in that way, rather than divorcing the God of spiritual things and then the God of of the world, which is my own reason. And so he responded to the problem by running without repentance. He's a failure. 
We will see in the coming, next week we will look at what happened to him because of his decisions. What happened to his family because of his decisions. But let me, let me cut to the chase. He left, irresponsibly, he left and went to Moab. Moab is not Israel's friend. They are their neighbor. They are not their friend. I want to tell you a bit about Moab. Moab came from Lot. If you remember Abraham's nephew, Lot, who was rescued from Sodom and Gomorrah. He had a way of getting himself into trouble. He was rescued from Sodom and Gomorrah and moved off with his two daughters. Sounds great. And they settled in the land of Moab. But before they started procreating uh, responsibly, the, the, the daughter of Lot got him drunk and went and got pregnant with him one night. And that incestuous child became the, the leader of the Moabites. That, that's how their nation began. Not a great start. Pretty, pretty filthy, but, but that's them. That's the Moabites. That's in their, in their blood now. This incestuous relationship. Uh, they were just east of Jerusalem, okay? Over the Dead Sea. And they would worship. This is what I mean by this sexual deviancy was in their blood. They, they had this filthy sexual worship to their god, Chemosh, right? We know from the New Testament, that's a demon. That pagan gods are demons. They're worshiping the pagan god, Chemosh. And particularly abhorrent to God is that they offer up in worship to Chemosh, human living sacrifices. The destruction of human life in worship of a demon does not make a nation the friend of God. But even more than that, when, when Israel, you know the story of the Exodus, when Israel left Egypt, wandered the desert, generation died, then they're walking back up into the promised land, the Moabites were sort of on the way. And Israel could have passed through them and had a very short trip, but Moab did not let them come through. They had to walk all the way around the land of the Moabites, and the Moabites did not send their food or water or help to those Israelites, but let them fend for themselves, prayed for their destruction, and then they got some prophet, this godless prophet named Balaam, and they tried to get him to prophesy against and curse the people of Israel so that they would die on their way around Moab. God doesn't let that happen, of course. He protects them. But it, we're just painting the picture that the Moabites aren't a helpful, friendly, godly place for Israelites to come and dwell. Then we learn in the book of Judges that those Israelites come and settle in their spot under the leadership of Joshua and a Moabite king comes and oppresses Israel, steals their food for 18 years, he subjects Israel. 18 years. So, so these Moabites are not close mates with the Israelites. In fact, God forbade ever for all time any Moabite from entering into the religious corporate worship with the Israelites. In the Old Testament, there could be other nations who could send people and, and they could become some form of God worshippers and join in the, the Hebrew worship, but not Moabites. They were not allowed in the corporate worship. In fact, there's one more thing that the, the Moabites did, which I have not yet mentioned. I've left the best to last. As Israel was forced to go on this extra journey around Moab before they came to their promised land, as they did that, the Moabites, by the advice of that false prophet, Balaam, 
They got all of their prettiest, youngest gals. They sent them on over to the borderline. And they got them to tempt. Since they could not get God to curse the Israelites, they instead sent the women over to tempt the Israelite men to uh, bring them into sexual fornication and adultery and in doing that, bring them into the worship of their God. Sexual immorality and idolatry, God despises. May we never be found to be walking in those things, friends. But Moab caused Israel to stumble. And because of that, God sent a plague that killed 24,000 of his own people for their sin. Now, Abimelech looks at things not spiritually, not biblically, but economically. He leaves the blessed, promised land of God, where God promises to bless if they walk in righteousness. He leaves there and goes over to Moab lands there, settles there, and takes his whole family there. And I'll just uh, give you a point, a, a clue for the next few weeks. His sons grow up, and who do they like? They like the hot girls of Moab. Let's just be real clear. The Moabite girls were pretty, according to the Israelites. And thus begins the, the downfall of Abimelech's family. And we will pick up more on the story next week. But let me, let me bring home a few points of application before we finish in this Old Testament book of, book of Ruth for today. I want you to remember, you to know, like Abimelech's name suggests, but his life did not, you need to know that God is, our King Jesus is sovereign over your life. In every situation, in every uh, occurrence and event, he is ruling it and bringing it to uh, flourish in his plan. He not only died for you, he now rules on the throne for you to not just forgive your sins through the cross, but also work all things together to make you like him and glorify God. We can see this in, in the amazing book of Romans chapter 8 verse 28, where Paul says this, this gives this amazing promise of the assurance that Christians can have because they are in Christ. And he says in verse 28 of chapter 8, we know, we know for certain, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That's the blessing that you, Christian, get in life. Everything under God's providence working for your good, which is Christ-likeness. Let me also say secondly, is, is this, as we've been talking about today, is this how you see your struggles as given by God, who is by your side with you in the situation? Not, not far off, not, not a way up over there who, who shoots down some struggle into our life, but the very near God by your side, the shepherd, the king, your father, who gives something to you. A struggle, a difficulty, a difficult family member, a, a sickness, joblessness, whatever it is. He's given that to you that you might turn into him, press into him, pray to him, look at this situation through his lens rather than run away from him to find a solution and then try and come back to him. Look at your situation as God's planning in your life. It's all God's 
providence. And you say, but this doesn't feel good. How can this be from God? Uh, I'll remind you of what the Puritans used to call the, the frowning providence of God. Just because a situation is difficult and hard and painful does not mean that God is against us and opposing us. It simply means that he gives to us both good and difficult situations. May this be your prayer as you are in difficult situations. Psalm 57, verse 1 through 3. Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge. Till the storms of destruction pass by, I, out, I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. That's providence. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. So let me bring this to a close by asking, since God is working all things for your Christ-likeness and glory, you must also do the same. Your, your finances are not primary. Your love life is not primary. Your, your, your God's glory is primary. And you ought to seek first the kingdom of God and, and righteousness and, and then as we do that, God will bring other things into play. And all other things are done. Decisions are made according to how we might seek God's glory, according to the guidance we have in Scripture for the, for the proclamation of the name of Jesus. And, and I, I want to end with this. Since if there is out there, if there is listening to this sermon, a, a man who has not repented, a woman who is still in their sins, a child who doesn't want to turn to Jesus, an elderly person who, who has refused the call of God on their life, refused to give up the, the hold and the pleasures of sin. This is the call of God. That you would leave behind your sin today. That you would give it to Jesus on, who died for you on the cross. That all of your sexual immorality, idolatry, consumerism, all of your selfishness, your violence, your wickedness in life, that was all taken by Jesus and so was the punishment due for every one of them. And friend, that is the joy of the Christian, to know it is not my own behavior, my own righteousness, my own obedience that gets me into the Father's love, but Jesus has died for me, removing God's wrath. He has raised back from the dead for me, securing my place in heaven. And he sits there now and he commands you to turn from your sin, lest you be punished, lest you be an enemy of God, that you would come to him, be saved, forgiven and accepted. Let's pray. Father, the book of Ruth shows us an amazing story that has started out quite dark and bleak but we will see your hope, your redemption, and your providence shining through. I pray that we would be people who trust and know that you control all situations, that rest in your wise providence. May we be people who change the direction of our life from sin and pleasure and comforts, but rather move them towards Christ's glory, his kingdom, service and obedience to him, since that is the direction you are taking the world. And God, may you please save those who are yet today still outside of submission to you, still outside of repentance, still out in their sin in the dark, not under your protection, not being, uh, having all things work together for their good, 
but rather, God, while they are damned, would you give them life to, to bring them into salvation? Would you, your Holy Spirit, send out life to those who would hear, build us up, bring new people into the faith, and God, make this church a church that loves you and blesses you and trusts you. May you be glorified today. Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.